When I am really standing in interbeing and looking at my judgments and looking at people who are doing horrific things in the world, what I think is, what would it take for me to do those things? Of course, who I am right now isn't going to commit horrific acts. But if I were subject to that person's entire history, if I were beaten and abandoned as a child, if I were abused as a child, if I were impoverished, if I had the totality of that person's situation, can I really be sure that I wouldn't have responded in the same way? Can I know that? And if I do believe that, that if I were abused and suppressed and exploited and given no chances and not shown any love and never accepted unconditionally, if I had all of that, I'd be better than that. Basically, what I'm saying is I'm better than you. And that is arrogance. Welcome to Men This Way, the podcast for every man who seeks to live his deepest purpose in life, who's committed to showing up fully and giving his unique gifts to the world. Because if not you, then who? I'm your host and fellow journeyman, Brian Reeves. Brian with a Y, Reeves. Men, this way. You know those people you don't like? Do you really know what it's like to be them? And do you see yourself as alone in the world or part of a greater whole? And did you know that the current political climate, which surely has you either upset or checked out, could actually be deeply liberating for you? Well, in this episode, my guest Charles Eisenstein and I mine these questions and more for useful insights to make a meaningful difference in your life. I was so excited for this interview with Charles. After spending the last few days really diving into his work in preparation to talk with him, I woke up at 5 a.m. this morning, my heart and mind just aflame with inspiration. I love what Charles is speaking into the world through his books, his articles, his live presentations, all online. Apparently, so does Oprah Winfrey, who recently released her own podcast interview with Charles. Charles' core message, as I experience it, is the acknowledgement of what the great Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh calls our interbeing, the awareness and practice of our connectedness to all things and thus to each other. What I love in particular about Charles' work is he brings that beautiful spiritual notion down to earth in ways us humans can actually work with in our everyday lives and relationships. Charles is a brilliant mind connected to a deeply inspired heart, all held inside the sturdy bones of a grounded and humble man. He graduated from Yale University with degrees in mathematics and philosophy and is the author of five books, including The Ascent of Humanity and The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. I decided during this conversation to make this part one of our exploration together, and thankfully he agreed because there's so much in his deep ocean of wisdom that I'm eager to explore. And even 60 minutes in, I felt like I was still just doggy paddling on the surface. 
I truly believe this man offers some of the most crucial insights to assist humanity through the challenging transition we're clearly going through now. And so I encourage you strongly to stay tuned all the way through to Charles' five key takeaways at the end of this episode of Men This Way. And if you want to share feedback or tell me what this conversation inspired in you, I love hearing from you. You can email me directly at brian at brianreeves.com. It's brian with a Y at brianreeves.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts. All right, let's dive. Charles Eisenstein, welcome to Men This Way. I can't tell you how excited I am to have you here. Yeah, thank you, Brian. Yeah, thank you for saying yes to this. It's my pleasure. Your name has come up in my circles for a number of times over the years, but you know, in, in the world of just vast information that we have, I never really dialed into who is Charles Eisenstein, what's he up to? And as I stepped into this podcast, and I want to honor Lissa Rankin for bringing us together. Like so many good things in my life, it's a woman that was the catalyst for it. <laughs> so, Lissa, if you're listening, thank you. Yep. Thank you, Lissa. Yeah. But as I started to really dive into, okay, what's Charles up to? I got to say, man, you are a man cut from the same heart, which is what I love about your work, which I experience is the acknowledgement that actually we are all of us cut from the same heart. But of course, my mind still lives in a lot of separation. So, you know, feeling that here is a man who speaks the poetry of my own heart and my own longing, but does so in a very, very grounded and philosophical way, man, I'm so delighted to be speaking with you right now. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Those generous words. So where I'd like to really start is the experience that you grew up with feeling like something's off here. You you tell a story about sitting in class on a beautiful day, Mm -hmm. knowing that if you were to just get up and walk outside, you would get, you'd get into trouble right to the principal's office. Right. Right. Kind of living with that. So I'd love, would you just bring us into your, your early experiences a little bit, what that was like for you to live with that? Well, like most kids at that time, especially I didn't have any concepts to translate my feeling of unfairness into. Yeah. Like I knew that there was something wrong here. We're not supposed to be sitting on a beautiful day in these rows, doing these worksheets, uh, looking forward to the weekend, looking forward to the end of school, watching the clock. You know, life isn't supposed to be that. But I didn't have any way to express that or articulate that uh, or form that as a conscious thought in my mind. All I had was various kinds of rebellion, mm-hmm. which is the lot of many school children. And maybe not everybody, maybe some people love school, but that would have been a small minority when I was there. And today, maybe there's kids in Montessori and Waldorf, right. you know, and things like that, that mm-hmm. don't have that experience. So it's less universal today. But back then, it was this oppressiveness yeah. that I eventually kind of took for granted as just the way the world is. So rebelling, you know, some kids rebel by acting out and getting into trouble. Other kids rebel by becoming dyslexic or depressed or Mm -hmm. anxious or just kind of doing things half-assed, you know, developing habits of laziness. Laziness is a kind of rebellion. Mm -hmm. And I guess I had mostly the more passive rebellion, 
I didn't get into trouble and stuff like that. I didn't vandalize the school. But yeah, I rebelled by not doing my best, yeah, not caring. And that was kind of this, the, that's my generation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know. I, I remember going to church, raised Episcopalian, and it felt like going to a funeral every Sunday. Mm-hmm. It felt like I was mourning being alive. I didn't, obviously couldn't articulate this at that age, but it felt to me like this doesn't feel right. And I remember once sprinkling salt in my hair before church, hoping that my mom would think I was too dirty to take to church. Uh-huh. And of course, she knew that it was just salt. She's a mom. She's not stupid. <laughs> Smartest person on the planet. She knows what her kid's up to, but she was just so like kind of disgusted with me. She was like, fine, stay home. And I was, I celebrated, mm-hmm. you know, it's the play outside. So, you know, I could so relate to, and I wonder how this continues to show up for you as an adult. I mean, for me, just going to the grocery store or the shopping mall, I have a visceral reaction in my body where I, I feel this doesn't fit. What's your experience as an adult? Yeah. The things that school trains us to put up with and to accept as normal are mm-hmm. no more acceptable now than they were back then. So yeah, I walk around in normal society with this sense of outrage or indignation. Mm. And, you know, sometimes it comes up as this desire to smash something Mm -hmm. and this almost death wish. Mm. Like if I read about some, you know, economic crisis or ecological crisis, there's part of me that's like, yeah, I hope this whole baby goes down because that speaks to this desire for liberation. Yeah. And at the same time, I know that that's going to that would come with, with, you know, at the cost of tremendous human suffering. Yeah. So I don't really want that. Yeah. But it does. So I, I take that energy now and I funnel it toward my mission in the world and my desire to be a force for change yeah. and an agent of, of healing the situation. And, you know, that feeling when it becomes conscious instead of unconscious, it can be a way to keep ourselves honest, to yeah. keep ourselves aligned with, okay, this dissatisfaction, what's it pointing me toward as an aim of my service? Yeah, it seems to be a a fundamental dilemma that as we awaken to the disconnect, and for example, I mentioned when I walked through a grocery store, most grocery stores, it doesn't feel like a natural creation. (laughs) I feel very disconnected from my own body, from life, from, and um, I remember I was with a, a friend of mine I remember he moved somewhere and he told me, yeah, man, it's a great place to live. I'm close to all the shops. And I remember thinking, why the fuck is that important? Being close to the shops. Oh my God. I had a visceral, like disgust reaction. Get me away from the shops. But then he and I, we went camping. We, or I think we were out one evening and we were doing some psychedelic mushrooms under a tree and, and we had this beautiful awakening in our bodies, you know, connecting to our bodies and to like just having that beautiful experience. And I remember at the end of the evening, it's like, man, I sure am glad the shops aren't too far from us right now. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like this fundamental dilemma that we live with of something's off here, but I don't know what the solution is. Well, if we take for granted the general shape of society and you have a, a way of living that necessitates going to shops, yeah. then it is better to live closer to the shops. <laughs> you know, like if you're going to have a shop dependent life, it's better to be close to the shops. Otherwise right. you're spending all your time driving. 
That's right. So it only makes sense to not be near the shops if you, uh, you know, are living in a really different way. Yeah, I know. I, I think that's what I, I so enjoy about your work is you really are exploring the edge of the emergence of a new story. You talk a lot about we're living in a time where we're really in between stories. Mm-hmm. There's the old paradigm of separation. I did an interview with an artist. Uh, have you ever heard of a man named Lee McCloskey? Nope. Oh my goodness. Well, he's, I just interviewed him the other day. He's going to be coming out. He was an actor on Dallas on like general hospital, uh, mm-hmm. but he is one of the most extraordinary minds. He's a visual, he calls himself, he's a visual philosopher, a painter, and he lives mm-hmm. in Malibu. And anyway, he, he said something really beautiful that we are coming out of the age of, I think, therefore I am. And we are, in his words, we are remembering the knowledge of the mother, which is I love, therefore I am. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I see it throughout your work, that emphasis on interbeing, mm-hmm. that word that you use from Thich Nhat Hanh, and, and interconnectivity and, and empathy. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder, can you just speak to that a little bit more, again, for mm-hmm. my audience that doesn't, isn't familiar with your work and your way of being? And then what I really want to get into is how are you living that? Okay. It's a big question, I know. Yeah, yeah. So, my work around around story or even mythology is another word to talk about the really deep stories. It comes from the sense that the transition that we are facing, or the revolution that we are facing and serving and participating in, goes all the way to the bottom. It's not a superficial revolution to do what we're doing a little bit better or a little bit differently, but it's a fundamental change. So for me, all the way to the bottom means our sense of ourselves, who we are, what's important in the world, how the world works, what's possible, what's real, like all that kind of stuff. So you can't get much more basic than the question, who am I? Mm. This question, you can talk about it on a personal level, but there's also a cultural level that tells us who we are in a way that we take as unquestioned. So if, for example, I said, okay, Brian, uh, close your eyes for 10 seconds and imagine yourself just existing. Okay, there you are existing. Most people, when I ask them that, imagine themselves alone. Mm. You do not need others to just exist. In other cultures, I'm told that that would not be that vision. You would imagine yourself with your family, with your tribe, at, in your place, mm. because who you are is answered differently by that culture. You are the totality of your relationships, but not a separate individual. So once you accept that who you are is a separate individual, so much of what we take for normal and real in this culture plays out naturally. Mm-hmm. For example, competition. Yeah. If you're separate from me, then my well-being and your well-being are not necessarily connected and I can benefit by exploiting you. Yeah. And if I'm separate from the world, then my benefit comes from harnessing natural forces and protecting myself from the competing others and the random natural forces out there. So we have then a course of domination over nature and competition among each other and all the scarcity that goes along with it and the anxiety and basically our whole civilization. So what I'm seeing is a revolution that goes to that level mm-hmm. where we hold as valuable and sacred and real 
things that have been marginalized or ignored. So, for example, ecology, which understands that the health of one is the health of all, that we're intimate related in that way. Or like various kind of relational interpersonal things, like the idea that the way that I judge you might be a reflection of something in me. Yeah. So some of this kind of work is also part of a new story yeah. that starts at the very basis of uh, answering who am I in a different way. Yeah. 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 I remember uh, years ago wrestling with that idea of the world is your mirror. And I remember sitting with a friend of mine and, you know, the world is my mirror. Well, my dad is this way. My dad is condescending, arrogant and judgmental and I can't stand it. There's no fucking way I'm like my dad. He's all these things and I'm not. And I remember sitting with a friend of mine who was from uh, Trinidad. It was in Miami at the time. And, and he was saying, yeah, you know, this mirror thing, it's bullshit because look, I just read some guy in Trinidad raped and murdered a child. And now I'm so angry and that pisses me off and it's disgusting. And there's no way that I would ever do that. Mm-hmm. And I thought about it and thought, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. The, the mirror thing is, can't, is can't be right. And I went home and I sort of, chewed on it for a bit and meditated on it. And and then it popped and it hit me and it was, well, maybe he wouldn't do that kind of violence to a child, but he would do violence to that violence or that violence rose violence in him. Right. And my arrogance, like only me and my arrogance can be angry or upset at my father and father's arrogance. Yeah. Or only my judgment can judge my father's judging something like that. Yeah. That's one way to look at it. When I am, really standing in interbeing and looking at my judgments and looking at people who are doing horrific things in the world. What I think is what would it take for me to do those things? Of course, who I am right now isn't going to commit horrific acts, but if I were subject to that person's entire history, if I were beaten and abandoned as a child, if I were abused as a child, if I were impoverished, if I had the totality of that person's situation, can I really be sure that I wouldn't have responded in the same way? Yeah. Can I know that? And if I do believe that, that if I were abused and suppressed and exploited and given no chances and not shown any love and never accepted unconditionally, if I had all of that, I'd be better than that. Basically, what I'm saying is I'm better than you. Yeah. And that is arrogance. Yeah. That is actually, it is, to me, it's just inaccurate. It's inaccurate. Yeah. My problem with it isn't that it's morally bad <laughs> to be in judgment. <laughs> right. It's just inaccurate. It's just not factually accurate. Right. right. Yeah. It makes, it has no basis in a reality. I right. think it's that question that you ask so beautifully throughout your writing. What is it like to be you? Yeah. What is it like to be you? Living in that question. You know, I work with a lot of couples and as a couples coach and of course in my own relationship, man, that is a, that's a really challenging question to live inside. I guess until you're practiced at it. Yeah. I suppose it's a matter of practice. It makes for very hot sex though. Oh, is that, tell me more. Let's okay. (laughs) Tell me more about that. (laughs) I wasn't like expecting to talk about that at all, but, but yeah, when you really go into that and start to co-resonate with your partner and like feel what she's feeling. Yeah. I mean, you know, assuming you're a heterosexual man, like, so. We'll just, we can frame it in that way, sure. Yeah, so feel what she's feeling. Mm-hmm. It, like, sets up this kind of echo chamber, like, resonance. Yeah. That 
is um, is a kind of an intimacy. I mean, what is intimacy actually? Yeah. But to have some sense of what it's like to be an other. Yeah. I love this one. I think this is so, so important because I know, I think a lot of men, the way we learn sex is through porn or through other men that have no idea what the hell they're doing, that aren't attuned anyway to the the partners that they're with. It's more about just self-pleasure or looking good, you know, pleasing the other as an act of, I need to look good, uh-huh. which has nothing to do with the other person. And I think what you're describing what is it like to be you just even in the sexual act and the intimate act is really, it's inha- being able to inhabit the other's experience to mm-hmm. a large degree to know that, oh, if I'm doing this, touching her this way, or notice she's reacting, she's not enjoying this, she isn't feeling good. Right. And being able to adjust that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this is actually a sign, uh, like one of the positive signs in our time. You know, there's a lot of reason for despair and stuff, but I'm noticing you know, even as the uh, external world seems to be spiraling into catastrophe, mm. on a less visible level, there's there's really positive changes going on. And one of them is in male attitudes towards sex. Mm-hmm. Because when I was like, up until the mid 80s, it was exactly as the feminists are saying, it's always all about male pleasure. Yeah. But around that time, I noticed a shift happening. When I was with the guys on the track team, you know, I mean, we were, you know, like we were the, the jocks. Sure. And I was on the wrestling team. Yeah. And it became no longer about, you know, my cock and I got laid and I, you know, got to the end zone, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It became about how much she enjoyed it. Mm. Like that was, became a much more high status mm-hmm. accomplishment than just mm-hmm. getting laid. Yeah. And I, I feel like that, shift is not always noticed. Yeah. You know, we're always talking about how in patriarchy, it's all about male pleasure and stuff, but I'm not actually seeing that. Mm. And maybe I'm living in a bubble, but yeah, I, I, you know, and maybe some of it is about my status as someone who's like, you know, so good at it that he can make women, women come, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, even to have that be something that men admire about each other yeah. is already a positive step. I totally agree. I think it's in process because I think a lot of us men are still using her pleasure. If she's not pleased, there's something wrong, which I think encourages then a lot of women to fake it. Maybe not fake orgasm, but fake enjoying anyway, even when they may not be. Right. So it's a, it's a gateway because then you start asking, okay, well, what does she like, you know, and, and how can I attune to what's true? And, and yeah, it opens up real intimacy. Yeah, it does. And I think, um, you know, this speaks to a bigger, the bigger collective. I mean, we access this sort of through a, a very specific conversation around sexuality and intimacy, but obviously this applies at a much greater scale. I mean, what's happening in politics as more and more women enter the political conversation and more and more women are standing up and saying, no, this doesn't feel good. What's happening? Separating children at the border doesn't feel good deprioritizing women's health doesn't feel good. This, that's a no for us. And sort of, you know, I think as men, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but our, our challenge, one of the great challenges is us men learning how to, again, attune to that, I'll just use this language, kind of the, the feminine heart of things so that we are, are loving rather than just focusing on our outcomes that we want and think need to happen. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, this could go into some deep territory and controversial territory as well. In you know certain politically correct circles, it's becoming taboo to uphold any essential difference between men and women. Yeah, and to say that it's all culturally constructed. Yeah, and I, I don't. I personally don't agree with that. No, I don't agree with that either. Yeah. I don't agree with that at all. In fact, I mean, just having you know raised four boys and mm-hmm. seeing them as little little things, and you know, you could say that it was my programming and cueing that made. Carrie fascinated with construction machinery at age one mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know then like onto every single stereotypical thing that boys like you know right. I mean you could say that I unconsciously programmed my Jimmy and Matthew to when we gave him a dollhouse to play King Kong with it like, that was <laughs> <laughs> okay I mean, like, okay so I mean, that's like, yeah I mean that's one level you know yeah. but, but also yeah. yeah also indigenous people who I talk to are often they would not say that gender is a cultural construct, that masculinity and femininity are just cultural constructs. They would say, and maybe I'm paraphrasing here, but this is kind of what I believe, that Mm. these are powerful archetypes that translate themselves through culture in different ways in different cultures. Mm -hmm. But we do not create these archetypes. Yeah, It's more like they create us. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's maybe like a little disclaimer around this. But as for the feminine heart, you know, the, the masculine qualities of like linearity and let's build it and let's do it and let's go there mm-hmm. and of working with abstractions, you know, and all that kind of yeah. stuff. If it does not have a feminine connection, then it becomes unmoored and it spins off in service to who knows what. Yeah. In service to making more money, in yeah. service to building bigger bombs, like That's right. unless there's some connection to what does the earth want, what serves the people, what serves the children, what serves the tribe, yeah. like what serves life, yeah, that is a partnership between those masculine traits, yeah, and that feminine heart that you're calling it, yeah, and. Yeah, like I'm not saying like you have to source that as a man from a woman. I'm not saying that a woman can't work with logic and abstraction and linearity and let's get it done and so on and so forth. Like I'm not saying any of that, but I do find that, you know, certain of these traits are usually more pronounced in men. Yeah. And I don't really care, you know, actually, you know, who has what, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But it's a useful thing for me to remember, whether it's, you know, through the external feminine or the internal feminine to really ground and source my service in in service. And you could say that, you know, a lot of the damage that we're doing as a culture is because of this runaway masculinity Mm -hmm. that's unmoored, that doesn't have an anchor, a root in earth. So, you know, you have like the quants working for the hedge funds, you know, maximizing almost every single one of those guys is a man. Mm -hmm. And is that because men are bad or is it because there's a disruption, a disconnection and a distortion. Yeah. I mean, so I've been with my fiance three and a half years. I'm 44 years, exquisitely aged. Thank you very much. I've been with her for three and a half years. And I I had an experience, you know, just six months into our relationship where she broke up with me. And at the time, you know, my blogs were being read by millions of people around the world. I was getting so much admiration. You know, I, I was making good money in my coaching practice. Like everything was working, Charles. Mm-hmm. 
And six months into our relationship, I mean, I was public. I wasn't violating any boundaries. I wasn't flirting with other women. Like I was in, I was all in. This was the one we're going for it. I'm 41 years old. What the hell else am I looking for? She's extraordinary. And she kept saying this thing. You're like a single man who wants to be in a relationship. You're like a single man in a relationship. I didn't know what she was talking about. Again, I changed my Facebook status, you know, (laughs) I, I did all the things and she broke up with me six months in. And I remember having the experience of, and this has happened to me a few times in my life. This was just sort of the latest where I'd had everything I thought I wanted. And when love left me and it wasn't, you know, from my own heart when Charles, none of it mattered. Right. I was absolutely gutted and nothing, even the way I experienced it, the three weeks we were apart, it's like I was walking around in the psychological space within which men kill themselves Mm -hmm. because I had the castle, but there was no life in it. Yeah. So what was the point? Right. So, I mean, there could be a lot of things going on with that. You know, part of it could have been an unresolved mommy wound. For sure. Oh, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to psychoanalyze you, but I mean, it is something that's come up for me too. Yeah. How much does my well-being depend on the acceptance of a woman? Well, what I want to really emphasize in this, because what you're bringing up, I think, and this is what I want, again, you know, I'm really enjoying your perspective and the thoughts that you bring to this. Because I think as men, we are generally... I think there's something to our hormonal makeup, just testosterone, how focusing and narrowing that is our sight and culturally also the program of again, outcome, no pain, no gain, you know, outcome above everything, Mm -hmm. all of that. But we get the outcome. Like again, in my case, all the success I thought I wanted, but if I'm not really showing up for love, if I'm not doing all that in service to something to love, whatever that looks like, it doesn't fucking matter. It's empty and it doesn't work. Right. I think that's what you're pointing at. Does that? Right. Yeah. We need to know what the outcomes should be. It's like, give me the task, you know, Mm -hmm. how can I use this focus? How can I use these, these capacities? I need help to direct them where they're supposed to go. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than just direct them. Cause I think my bank having a bigger bank account will make me feel better. Right. You know, there's this thing in the, in the entrepreneurial world. I want to impact 82 billion people by the year 2020. Right. You've probably seen or heard that. Yeah. I mean, that kind of focus on measurable outcomes and stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that, you know, measurable outcomes are a bad thing or a bad way to think, but they're in a way a substitute for real connection to what is serving on the deepest level. David Data has a good analogy that or a good little, you know, thought experiment that kind of points to this kind of something similar where he, he draws a scenario where the guy comes home. Hey, honey, guess what? I made a million dollars today. Yeah. yeah. And she's like, oh, good. Did you pick up the milk? Yeah. You know, and like, like basically she doesn't care yeah. about that measurable outcome. She wants to make sure that he is in actual service to what's important, to love, to yeah. life. Yeah. And I think that when we depart from that, then women or the feminine principle gets irascible, impatient. Mm-hmm. And dissatisfied. And we're like, okay, well, maybe $10 million would satisfy her. Right. But no, like that's not what is wanted. 
That's right. And we get frustrated when we're doing all the things we think we're supposed to do to build the castle, to have a safe castle for her to live in. And she's got nothing to worry about. And she's still not happy. Right. And it's something to listen to, just something to listen to. It's not, you know, not just to dismiss. And, you know, it's not like she's always right. It's not like, you know, there couldn't be ego coming in from there and control and manipulation and so on. It's definitely a line of information that a thread that is an essential part of the tapestry. Well, I think like what you've pointed at throughout your work, empathy, what is it like to be you? You know, you talk about that in the kind of the macro sense, the global sense. When I say that, I just mean your neighbor, you're not necessarily localizing that in intimate relationships. Although obviously it applies completely to your intimate relationship. Yeah. Because every every relationship and politically too, like what is it like to be Donald Trump? You know, what is it like to be whoever you vilify? You know, whoever you hold, what is it like to be the corporate executive or the military commander or the terrorist or the criminal or the welfare mom, the single mom? On like, what is it actually like to be that person, rather than holding a judgment and seeing them as the projection of your belief system? So let me ask you this, though, because I'm on board. I'm enrolled. I get it. But I can imagine a lot of men and some women listening would say, well, I don't care what it's like to be them. They did this bad thing or they're doing this bad thing or they're, you know, what do you say to that? I say that if you want them to stop, then you'd better understand why they're doing it. Mm. Because if you don't understand why they're doing it, the only way to get them to stop is to use force. Like, you don't have to understand why the criminal is you know, robbing and killing and raping people, you don't have to understand, you just lock them up. So there's a few problems with that. One is that the base conditions that are generating an endless supply of criminals or abusers mm. remain the same. Yeah. So you're going to have an endless mm. war or an you know, endless war on terror, an endless war on crime, continuing, there's more and more and more, and you keep locking them up and you're like, well, the final solution will be a total surveillance state so we can spot crime before it even happens and then we will win this fight. So that's one problem is that it creates endless enemies to fight. And another problem is, okay, what happens when the perpetrators are more powerful than you in terms of force? What happens when a military, industrial, pharmaceutical, agricultural, educational, NGO, industrial complex is ruling the world and they have more guns, more money, more media, how are you going to stop them by force? Mm -hmm. So basically, when we say so-and-so is doing something because they are a bad person and not understanding why, our options are very limited. Either dominate them or (laughs) go into despair. Yeah. But when we ask, why are they doing that? What is it like to be them? You still might try to fight them by force. But you have all kinds of other options available that might be able to change the conditions that are generating the behavior. Yeah. And this is not about giving them a free pass or something like that. It's about actually being effective. Yeah. And you may not get the satisfaction of victory, but the conditions will change. Yeah. Which do you want? Do you want to be the winner or do you want to actually have healing in the world? Yeah. Yeah. And I find when, when we feel understood, we also become more influenceable. When we feel understood, That's right. yes. we become more influenceable. Right. Yeah. 
because if someone sees you as an enemy or as a perpetrator or as a you yeah. know, violent male, and that's just who you are, Brian, yeah. I'm not creating any space for you to step into anything else. No, that's right. And I might even be inviting you into the very thing that I'm holding of you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just you saying that, I can feel my blood begin to... Yeah. <laughs> like, you're going to act like that. Like, oh, yeah, Charles? Is that what you think I am? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but if I look at you, and I might not say it out loud, but yeah. if I look at you and I, 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 and I know, yeah. and I say to myself, here's a beautiful, sacred being who wants to be in service to life and express his gifts in the world. Yeah. And gosh, if he's not doing that right now, what's stopping him? And how can I help him see what's stopping him? How can I be his ally yeah. in finding new ways to express his gifts? Like, even if I don't say that, but I'm seeing you that way, I'm going to be oriented to those opportunities. I'm going to be attuned to it. And you're going to feel it. Yeah. You're going to know that I'm not your enemy, that I'm your ally, that, that I want deep down, I want what you want. Yeah. And you won't have resistance. You've quoted your friend, Pancho, and I know you forgot mm-hmm. his last name in your TEDx talk. Ramos, Ramos Stierl. There you go. Yeah. yeah. And what does he say that's so profound? A lot of things. Um, are you thinking if there's a victim on both ends of the gun? Well, I'm thinking of uh, you shared something specific in one of your articles where what when, when you know to his jailer to the one that he's doing. Oh, right. Activism. Your soul is too beautiful to be doing this work. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. He also says there's a victim on both sides of the gun, on both ends yeah, of the gun. Absolutely. Same. Same idea. But I just can imagine, you know, your soul is too beautiful to be doing this work. I know that, you know, someone's not always going to be able to receive that or hear that, or it's not going to necessarily snap them out. But I I do believe that in the heart of us all, there is a desire, deep, deep yearning for that connection, for that return to the experience of connection. Mm -hmm. And it's the separation. The separation kills us. It hurts. Mm -hmm. And those actions, we're either doing actions that that create further separation or bring us together. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Pancho, he holds this very strongly and sometimes miracles happen like Mm. abusive cops. They'll like, you know, start helping out and, and, and violent guys will change, you know, around him through their interaction. Mm. And I find that it's, that this basic principle that the story we hold about somebody is, is an invitation for them yeah. to play out that story is really useful wow. in all kinds of interactions. Can you say that again? That's really beautiful what you just yeah. said. The story that we hold about another person is an invitation for them to step into that story. Mm. So even like something as trivial as you're at the airline counter and there's a problem with your ticket and da 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 right? Mm. You can either go into opposition and I'm going to try to scare and, and yeah. intimidate this person into helping me. Or what I do is I stand there and I hold the story and the feeling with the story because it's actually not just an intellectual thing. Yeah. But I hold the story of, I know you really want to help me. Yeah. And I know you'll feel so good if you can find a solution. Yeah. And no matter what they say, I'm just like so polite mm. and friendly you know, and, and I'll, and I'll think, what is it like to be you? Wow. You must be really busy today. Wow. That this mm-hmm. weather must have made you like, I hope people are being kind to you, you know? Yeah. So this is one way that to make this really practical to achieve results that are beyond what you could achieve through 
any kind of force. Man, it's so profound because, you know, obviously there's two sides to that. There's the, and I can relate so many times when, yeah, I'm on the phone with, with a customer service agent or I'm at a, you know, a ticket counter of one sort or another. And immediately I'm not getting it the way I want it. And what happens is that person can become an adversary. And the moment they become an obstacle, I've just invited them, inviting them into being more of an obstacle, (laughs) holding the story of them as an obstacle. What is their, you know, I'm I'm inviting them into that story. Yeah. And it doesn't always quote work. Of course. You know, if I'm buying a used car or something like that, you know, like there are situations where they're a predator and you're prey. Mm. So I'm not saying like you can always avoid adversarial relations. Yeah. But we live amidst really powerful programming to see everything that way. Yeah. Like the movies. So Stella, I think, I think it was, anyway, someone showed their kid this Disney movie about the um, dog sleds getting medicine to Nome, Alaska. I can't remember the name of the movie, but it was like this heroic thing. You know, it's a real life story, Mm -hmm. but then Disney added a bad guy into the story Mm. to make it a better story. Mm Mm-hmm. And that plot line mm. of defeat the bad guy and the problem is solved and the bad guy is just bad. Yeah. That irredeemably so. Irredeemably evil. Yeah. yeah. That programming is in our entertainment industry. It's, and it's in our basic story of the world. It's in our religion. In our science too. Mm. Our genes program all beings to maximize reproductive self-interest. Mm. Everyone is dog-eat-dog. Like that's just biology. Mm. And so to overcome that biology, we have to dominate our basic biological selves with something mm. called spirituality. Mm. And I think that this is not a new story. This is actually a reiteration of the story of domination turned inward. So anyway, the programming and the invitation to see the world through adversarial eyes is really strong and it takes... Yeah a lot of deprogramming to operate in a different way. Well, I think this is really interesting because I think, you know, I, I'm a big fan of Joseph Campbell, his work of in the hero's journey. And, and, you know, I've learned a lot about how there are mythologies, you know, the women who run with the wolves, Clarissa Pinkola Estes, you know, masterpiece about the, the, the wild woman archetype and all her stories. And it seems that yeah. just in being human through our journey of growth, there are, energies, let's say, aligned, and it could be just our own momentum of staying where we are, just a simple fact of inertia to keep us where we are. And yet there's a, a seedling inside, a yearning for expansion. What you're sharing right now, I'm aware that we've externalized that tension or that stress of growth. We've externalized it in, you know, a devil, a bad guy, you know, the evil stepmother, all the different ways that we've, you know, racists or, you know, non-white nationalists. If you're a white nationalist, then the people who are not for white nationalists matter, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Something. We've externalized that inner. Like, what is that then? Is, is there a, sort of an internal adversary that maybe we need to learn how to be with rather than keep projecting externally? Well, there's different things I could say about that. One is you could look at it as inertia or fear of change or something like that, you know, addiction to comfort and familiarity. Mm-hmm. But you could also look at the comfort and familiarity and the, the small world that we lock ourselves into as a cocoon 
as a place in which we grow. And it's only after that growth happens that the conditions that have held us become oppressive and we desire to break free of those. And I mean, there's something to what you're saying. I think it might be more though that we so project out and simplify the limiting conditions and convert them into the enemy, Mm -hmm. which is actually a way to maintain the status quo, right? Because you're externalizing it. Yeah. It's not about you anymore. It's about something outside of yourself. Yeah. And you can use the familiar response of fighting something. And if, yeah. And if it's not this group or this person, it's going to be that one or that person. I mean, it's, it's a moving target, right? It just gets replaced with something else. Right. I guess what I'm just exploring with you is, Again, and I'll bring it back to intimate relationship, just because that is currently the focus of the work that I do. Mm. And I mean, both professionally, but personally, three and a half years into an extraordinary relationship. And man, there ain't no escaping my own shit, you know, my own resistance, my own, what I would just say, the limits of my capacity to love and my old traumas and all of that stuff. And I experience this woman, Sylvie, she is... I mean, this is the relationship I've dreamed of for a lifetime. This is it. I'm in it. And there are times I still can experience that resistance in me to loving, to being empathic, to inhabiting her world, to, you know, we're different thought worlds, we're different experiences, we're different foci of attention, of of energy. And there are gaps between us that are challenging to bridge at times, you know, and it's so easy to just say, well, she's doing something and that's why I'm grumpy today or that's why it doesn't work right now or that's why. Uh So I guess I'm just sort of exploring this with you because you're, you know, we're talking about stories and I think it's also just easy to beat up on myself too and say, well, God, I'm fucked up, you know, and I think a lot of men will do this in intimacy. We'll say, well, she's, I can't do it. I can't figure it out. I'm fucked up. I don't know, whatever, you know, it's like either explode outward or we implode inward. Right. There's three wrong responses. There's exploding outward, like attacking. Yeah. There's capitulation, imploding inward. Mm-hmm. And then the third is going numb. Yeah. And really what is called for and on some level what she wants is for you to stay empathic, to go there into the feeling with her, but not to capitulate, not to, you know, abase yourself not to apologize for something you're not actually sorry for. Yeah. But to be solid, to be honest, to be unshakable. And there's just a lot of inquiry for me, at least. Um, Well, I wonder how does this show up? If if I'm going to ask, well, I figure on this, I can ask anything you can always not answer. How does this show up in your actual relationship experience? Well, for me, yeah, a lot of what I've been looking at is my patterns of trying to keep everybody happy and gaining approval mm-hmm. and mortgaging my sovereignty to that, mm. which can become like this kind of codependent thing Yeah, where you have a deal, you have an arrangement mm. that she'll provide the approval and I will do certain things in order to get the approval. And I won't do anything that violates that. And it's, and it, it becomes in the end very stagnant. Yeah. And then you'll feel, yeah. You know, when I go into that, then I feel resentful. Yeah. 
because I'm not being myself and I'm setting her up as a jailer. Yeah. And I'm not like describing my relationship right now, but I'm describing a tendency in myself that has come up to a greater or lesser degree in various relationships. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you know, some of the stuff about, like you were saying, there's still gaps in my understanding of who she is, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. This is not about becoming the perfectly acceptable man to gain her perfect approval and acceptance. Mm. This is in an intimate partnership like this, whatever, she might get angry. She might get grumpy. Like this could be revealing something in yourself and it may not be the way that you've been wrong. It may be like, this is a trigger for your people pleasing insecurity or something like that, Mm -hmm. or your doubts about your self-worth and how are you sourcing those? Yeah. So, yeah, I don't want to, yeah, I just want to just point to the complexity. Yeah. So many shades of nuance that come up in these relationships. Yeah. See, nuance, that word nuance, there's all the layers, all there's so many layers to this. There's so many rabbit holes we could dive into. And I so enjoy that about your work. And one of the things that really moved me that you shared, and I'm not sure um, maybe it was your acupuncturist, Sarah Fields, that said this initially, but you, and you ran with it, but hate is a bodyguard for grief. Mm-hmm. And I've been going through a lot of grieving that I didn't even know was here for me to grieve in these last few years. And the note that you shared, hate is a, just a bodyguard for grief. When people lose the hate, they're forced to deal with the pain beneath. Could you just speak to that for a moment? Bring that alive a little bit more for us. Yeah. Hate is the bodyguard of grief. So I guess maybe to source back to what I was talking about at the very beginning, like the the schoolboy, you know, feeling oppressed and imprisoned and and this can't be right. This whole society, it can't be like this. Life is supposed to be more beautiful, more authentic, more intimate, more alive. But, uh, okay, I guess it's just this. And all the things that, that we sacrifice and the expectations that we lower and the losses that we suffer by living in that. I mean, it's the loss of what childhood is supposed to be, profound losses. Mm-hmm. Not to mention the trauma that is normalized in this society. There's a lot of grief there mm-hmm. that wants to be expressed. But if we hold a worldview that normalizes it and cuts us off from feeling that grief, we're going to feel angry. Mm. Anger is not a bad emotion. Anger is what can smash through barriers. And if we do not dismantle those barriers in some other way and access the reality of what we've lost and we're cut off from that, and there's like this internal tension between on the one hand, deeply knowing that it's not supposed to be this way, and the other hand, intellectually believing that this is just normal, this is just life and it's normal to look forward to weekends and to look forward to early retirement or something like that, then we're going to be angry. Like that structure, that wall that we erect, the only way to break through that is with anger. So anger is natural and important under those circumstances and very destructive as well, because it can be so easily co-opted and turned towards something that's not actually that wall. Mm -hmm. But the basic energy is the energy of wanting of liberation, seeking liberation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then hate, you know, it's just a projection of that anger onto 
whoever's convenient. It's kind of what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. It's, it's directing the anger away from that wall, away from the imprisoning circumstances, and toward placeholders that we can blame for those circumstances. And it's not like these placeholders may not have a role in maintaining the circumstances, but and this goes back to what I was saying before, to hate them is a misattribution mm-hmm. because they're only doing that because of the circumstances that have brought them into that role. Right. And those circumstances are vast, all encompassing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I call myself a life coach, relationship, particularly relationship coach so that you know, I can work for a living and people know how they can pay me and how I can serve them in a very concrete way. But, but the reality is, you know, I, I do the work that I do because I know that I believe through intimacy, the whole world changes through intimacy, our politics change, everything changes. And so, you know, as you're sharing about, about hate and a lot of your work, at least as I experience it is kind of focused on a kind of a, the global interconnectivity. Mm-hmm. But I want to draw that connection because yeah, hate shows up in intimacy all the time. I can't stand you right now. I hate, you know, we might not say the word hate, but it definitely shows up in, ah, you fucking suck right now. <laughs> right. And it's the same thing. I mean, what you're pointing at, it's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, it's the energy of wanting liberation from some kind of thing that's confining your full expression and growth. And it just, you clamp down on that and it comes out to the most convenient outlet, which is very often your intimate partner. Yeah. Yeah. But the energy's real. There's something there. And once you find what that thing is, and it could be something in your relationship, it could be something totally not even about your relationship. Mm-hmm. But once you find where it is, then the hate has no engine underneath it anymore. Yeah. And I think that, that again, coming back to what is it like to be you? living in that inquiry or at least stepping into it in those moments where we feel that hate arise or that disgust or that rejection of other using that as a trigger for that question. What is it like to be you? I remember a friend of mine told me a few years back that he would, when he was in a fight or getting into an argument with his partner, he would go on this kind of thought exercise and he would go in his mind and he would say, well, look, if I was her and I was raised with a mother who totally dismissed my emotions and a father who wasn't present and, and sort of did this thought exercise and went down this road of, of all the things that led to this moment where she was basically, you know, disconnecting from her emotions and not accepting his, et cetera. It's like, yeah, I guess I, I, I would, I would totally do what she's doing right now. Yes. And I would call that looking for what is it like to be you, which is not the same as seeing what it is like to be you. Oh, good. Okay. Tell me more. What's the distinction? Well, in order to see it, you have to look for it. But looking for it doesn't necessarily immediately help you see it. So if you're just running an ideology that there must be have been something, okay, you can end up, but if you don't actually see it, you can end up being kind of patronizing. Meaning, so like you're making up a story versus... Yeah. Um, like, how do you mean? Help me, help me understand. Like... What's the difference between seeing it? If you like, uh, I don't know, you did something that insulted me or ripped me off or something like that. And I'm like, uh-huh. Brian, I know that there must've been something that happened to you to make you do that. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, doesn't that feel a little bit patronizing? Like, fuck off, man, Charles, you don't, you don't know me. You don't know what I've been through. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and even if I don't say that out loud, but right, right. 
as opposed to actually seeing who you uh-huh. are uh-huh. and understanding what you did from that place. And you'll feel seen. People want to be seen in relationships. That's one of our deepest needs yeah. is to really be seen by the other. And what prevents seeing from happening is two things. One is the other person's projections. And the other is your own hiding yeah. and guarding. So both of those need to be relaxed for there to be, for this need to be seen. Mm-hmm. That. And yeah, so if I'm just having a spiritual ideology of interbeing, that's not the same as actually seeing you. But the spiritual ideology, this principle does at least get me to look for it, to give you a chance to try to understand. Mm-hmm. So it's a really good step. And with practice, you know, we get better and better at seeing each other. But it also requires a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Because if what's blocking it is the fog of judgment and projection that you're holding, each one of those that you let go of is also part of your self-image. Mm-hmm. Because our judgments are the mirror of our identity. It's who I am in relation to who you are not, to what you are not. I'm this more than you are. Because the essence of judgment is... I wouldn't do that if I were you. Right. So I am different and better in this way or worse in this way, but different in this way. So to actually see somebody, it's not just like you have this principle of inner being. So you try harder to see them. Mm -hmm. This is more than intellectual. It requires a letting go of something that's, that's precious to you. Mm -hmm. It's part of your identity. And it's not like you can force yourself to let go of something that's not even ready to be let go of. Mm-hmm. But it's a ripening and un- an unfolding. And as these judgments and the interior state around the judgments, which might include all kinds of trauma and, and all kinds of history, like as that becomes ready to release, then that judgment can drop. Then you can see the other person more fully. Yeah. And real intimacy grows. Yeah. And the, um, the anger no longer needs to be displaced into hate. Yeah. You said something in one of your talks, to create real change in the world, we may need to sacrifice being right, being good. Right. Yeah. And it's really the image, the self-image and image to others of I've been right all along. See, I'm the good guy. I'm ethical. Like, are you willing to give that up for a better relationship, for a better world? Would you accept that? Like, suppose you were your most dearly held political beliefs, suppose they were totally wrong. Would you be willing to go through that humiliation if it would bring a better world? Or what if they're not wrong, but it would serve a better world to be exposed and ridiculed? Mm-hmm. Like, what do you actually serve here? And this gets to something that's core to, to being a man and maybe to some extent to being a human. And before you go there, this yeah. is so big, so important. Before you go there, I want to also draw that distinction. I can see now more clearly what you were saying when you're looking for it. That's almost another way, like as, as I'm sharing, like what my friend, the, the, where he would, oh, okay, well, if you did this, if you grew up with that, you know, right. I, can, I can see how actually that's just, that's a really clever way of still being right. Having it figured out. It can be. In a way. Yeah. It can be. Right. So even like, I really get how it's not just an intellectual pursuit. Right. Yeah, it can be kind of patronizing, you know? Yeah, I know yeah. what you mean. Totally. But it can also be like a really sincere, let me look, I'm looking. You know, it's not like I'm just going to satisfy myself with this explanation. I'm yeah. going to explain it away because it was this, this, and this. But actually, it's actual like, curiosity. Yeah. What is it like to be you? Yeah. And when that is held sincerely, 
It is a powerful prayer. Yeah. If you hold any question sincerely, it will bring the answer to you. It exerts an unstoppable pull on the universe, mm. a sincere question. That's one of the most powerful practices yeah. that you can have, but it has to be sincere. Otherwise, if it's insincere, yeah. guess what you get? You get a false answer, which is what you really want. You want an answer that confirms you mm. as being right and in the right and good and so forth. Oh, That's man. why, and you'll end up in a maze of delusion. So it's the sincerity of the question. And it's so, we do so much damage from that place to each other and ourselves. Cause we think well, I got it figured out. So that means I know what to do. I know what needs to be done here. Mm-hmm. And we press ahead with our conclusion, which seems well thought out. And it's like, I remember uh, meeting a, a black woman many years ago at a workshop, a Byron Katie workshop I did where she discovered she was living in this story of, look, my two black boys are going to be beat down by the world. So I'm going to prepare them for that by beating them. Mm-hmm. I'm going to beat them first to prepare them for what's going to happen. And when she discovered through that work, what she had done and the story she was basing it on, man, she, the cry that emitted from her, I've never heard anything like it. The grieving that she went through when she saw what she had done to her children Mm -hmm. with the best of intentions. That's a beautiful example of what is it like to be you? You know, like we would love to condemn people who beat their children. Mm -hmm. I would never do that. But do you know that you would never do that? Yeah. You know, and then once you hear that story, then there's understanding and you can't hate anymore. You cannot hate her anymore. That energy has to find somewhere else to go. Where does it go? Now it has the opportunity to go toward actually changing the conditions. Mm -hmm. It's freed up. Mm. So hate and judgment, they bottle up energy and turn it toward an end that doesn't actually change anything. Mm -hmm. Hate and judgment are essential to maintaining the world as it is. The powers that be, whether they are human, like conscious entities or something, you know, archetypal and metahuman, they love it when the political discourse gets highly polarized and two sides are hating each other because then they know that nothing is going to change. Yep. And the strategy of whipping up more hatred against the other side to finally defeat them, that keeps things the way they are. Same thing in a relationship. Yeah, for sure. Hate maintains the status quo. Judgment maintains the status quo. Yeah. Now you were coming to this point of it goes to the core of what it means to be a man, or at least what our experience of being a man. Yeah. It's another transformative question. You know, what do I serve? Yeah. And if you have a strong aim in life, then it becomes clear when you're not serving that aim. So even if your partner or somebody comes at you with a lot of negative energy, you have the question, okay, what am I going to serve here? Am I going to serve winning this fight? Or am I going to use this situation, whatever's coming at me as fuel or nourishment or something that will serve my aim, my mission? Mm-hmm. or whatever you want to call it, my purpose for being here. Um, I, I wouldn't say that this is necessarily masculine. I think this is more universally human. Mm-hmm. Although what for a man in this culture and a woman in this culture, the way that that is expressed and the kind of aim that it is could be very different. But it is basically an alignment to why am I here? Yeah. Charles, we're going to call this part one of our conversation, if that's okay with you. 
because there's so much more that I want to explore with you, you know, but I was talking with my partner this morning about your conversation. You're pointing to kind of the morphic field experience and how change happens in the new paradigm of interbeing. How useful, let's say, or, or important or helpful. I'm not sure what the right word is, but how it matters. You know, just I grew up in a family where, well, split family, but part of my family was so busy trying to save the world that the family itself was a fucking mess. Yeah. They didn't save anything as far as I could see. World still seems pretty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of messy. <laughs> a lot of damage has been done. A lot of harm has been done in the world by people trying to save the world. Yeah. Adolf Hitler yeah. saw himself as trying to save the world. Mm. He yeah. was full of certitude and righteousness. Yeah. So I want to definitely have you back on for another conversation. I'd like to wrap this one up today. Okay with the five key takeaways finale. All right, let's do it. So can I just get you on record? I know I'm putting you on the spot, but can I get you on record as, uh, will you come back and be on this show with me again? Yeah, I will. Thank you, Charles. Great. So, but we'll wrap up today, part one, with the five key takeaways finale. And so here is number one, key insight. What's the one key insight that you would offer our listeners that you believe can make a meaningful impact on their lives because it has in yours? Oh, it's probably one of the things I was talking about. Maybe that if I were in the totality of anyone's circumstances, I could very well be doing what they're doing. Mm. I'm no better than any other person. Yeah. Yeah. That's massive. And that's, that's world changing Yeah, on macro and just again, in your immediate relationship. It changed my life. Yeah. Um, it kind of let me stop having to demonstrate my superiority. Oh man. Very freeing. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've very much been on that journey in my, you know, especially my, again, my intimacy, man, that's been the place where I've really, cause it's easy on Facebook. I can just say something stupid about Trump or politics and kind of walk away from it and not really have to deal with what comes up. Yeah. But in my intimacy, I can't do that <laughs> at all. Not with the woman I chose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so um, that's really beautiful. It's profound. Number two, Key mentor, name another man that you've been inspired by, living or dead, that you would recommend our listeners to learn more about. Well, there's not a whole lot of his stuff online, although I've recorded some conversations with him, but Orland Bishop is somebody who's had a very powerful effect on me. Mm. Um, Not so much from anything he said, but more by uh, witnessing his comportment, Mm. just the way he handles himself. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like a, it's been a strong transmission for me. Wow. Yeah. I love that. That again, speaks to just how our being in the morphic field. And I know for our listeners, they're not really hearing, they're not, we haven't gone into that and we'll, we'll maybe save that for part two. I think that's a really, that's a good, a good topic for part two. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, Number three, key resource, your most impactful, inspiring book, movie, or podcast of the last year, yours or someone else's, or you can do both if you want. (sighs) Ah. You know, when I read that question, I was like, actually, I mean, what's like sitting with me strong right now is um, a series I'm watching with my six-year-old. Oh, yeah. So I'm not sure if it's not maybe exactly what you're looking for, but it's... Uh, it might be exactly what I'm looking for. Ron- Ronya, it's this Japanese, it's Miyazaki's son, actually. Mm-hmm. And like, actually, all of Miyazaki's work mm-hmm. is a radical departure from the plot line of the bad guy. Mm. And... 
if you have children and are wary of showing them media, mm -hmm. if you show them anything, any animated thing, like Miyazaki is some of the best. And it's just, it just conveys this gentleness mm. of seeing the world and this love mm. exquisitely. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's perfect. You know, as you were sharing that, you know, I don't have kids yet, God willing, someday, but I'm reminded of the book, The Little Prince. Yeah. Even the dedication in that book, you know, he dedicates it to his, uh, I can't remember exactly the dedication, but he says, look, this book is for children and for adults who are smart enough to get children's books. Mm -hmm. So I, I, there's so much beauty and wisdom in, in what's created for children, mm -hmm. supposedly. So perfect. Thank you. And, and also for our listeners, this will all be in the show notes. If you're driving or you're at the gym, you don't have to write this down. This will all be in the show notes at brianreeves.com slash men this way podcast. So don't sweat it. Number four, key investment. Now, this would be an interesting question for you specifically, but given your, your work around money and the system and all of that, so I'm fascinated to hear your answer to this, but um, what's the best thing that you've spent money on under $10,000? It was taking my 14-year-old son with me on a trip, a speaking trip. Oh, yeah, to where? Um, actually, I took him on two, but the last one was to Colorado and Santa Fe. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, he got to, you know, witness me, you know, doing my work mm -hmm. and speaking and mm -hmm. we just had really beautiful moments yeah. together. Like, I mean, that is an investment that fires cannot burn and thieves yeah. cannot steal. Yeah. Nothing can take that away from me. Yeah. Or him. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, he'll remember that for the rest of his life. I mean, that is a secure investment. Yeah. I know I, I reflect on, you know, my parents separated when I was four. But there were some trips that I, and I haven't really had a close relationship with my dad for most of my life, but there are some trips in my teens, you know, early kind of 10, 12, 14, Grand Canyon, you know, that, that are mm -hmm. unforgettable. I mean, they're part of my DNA. Mm -hmm. So that's beautiful. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. And number five, the last one, please offer one consistent practice spiritual, creative, personal, or relational that has served you well and that you challenge our listeners to take on for the next seven days? Hmm. Well, there's two that are coming to mind right now. One is around ceremony, but I feel like that requires a bit more. And we can save that for the second. Yeah. So instead, I will offer a uh, news fast. Mm, okay. For seven days, go on a news fast. And thereby putting yourself in an unfamiliar environment mm. where usually people choose their news to reinforce who they are and how they see themselves and how they see the world. And if you are in a place in life where you're getting a little sick and tired of the way that you've been being and seeing the world and you want to deprogram from that, then try a news fast. Don't read any news at all, or watch any news, or listen to any news for a week, and see how you feel. See what opens up. Watch the addictive craving to tune in. Watch that come up. See what, yeah, see what opens up. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to do that. I've definitely become addicted to my news app on my iPhone. And I've gone through, I've done news fasts in the past. And the, the quick question though, Charles, does that also include, you know, uh, Trevor Noah on YouTube, Stephen Colbert? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm taking it on. Just for a week. 
just yeah. for a week, seven days. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. I, I'm taking that on and I invite all of our listeners to do so. I know that I am addicted to information and boy, that little Apple news button on my iPhone. So it's like the hate thing I was talking about, you know, that distracts us and uses up all our energy. Yes. Um, and prevents deeper change. It's part of that whole matrix. Yeah. So it, it conditions our thoughts, our perceptions, how we see the world, how we see the problems. It keeps us locked in. Yeah. I'm on board, man. I can feel it when I, it's at that point where when I go to press that button on my phone, I feel heavy. Mm-hmm. My body, I feel it. Why am I pressing buttons on my phone that feel heavy? I should delete those buttons, Charles. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that's a great practice. And we'll, uh, ceremony, morphic field, we'll save that for part two. All right. Uh, where can our listeners learn more about you and what you're up to? Uh, the internet. <laughs> yeah. I have a website, charleseisenstein.org, I think is what it is now. And I would encourage you listening to look at some of his videos and we'll, again, we'll put some of these in the show notes at brianreeves.com slash men this way. It's Brian with a Y reeves.com slash men this way, but we'll put some of his videos in the show notes. I got to tell you, um, I'm speaking to the listeners, Charles, but again, I'm speaking to you as I was really diving into your work and watching your videos and, and even this conversation, man, I, I, I'm so lit up and so inspired and you know, the word hopeful comes to my mind as well, but I just, I'm going to die, you know, in the next couple dozen years, kind of one way or the other. I mean, I, you know, whatever happens to the world 500 years from now, I'm not going to be around probably who knows what Silicon Valley will come up with, (laughs) but, oh man, your work, your words, being in this conversation with you, your videos online, everything, man, I'm, I'm so deeply inspired and touched and grateful that you're doing what you do and that you said yes to doing this with me here. So Mm. thank you. Yeah, thank you, Brian. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you again to my guest, Charles Eisenstein. Find Charles at charleseisenstein.org. It's Eisenstein with an E-I-S-E-N-S-T-E-I-N.org. Just search for him online. He's not difficult to find. And of course, this link And any resources mentioned in Charles' five key takeaways will be in the show notes at Brian Reeves. It's Brian with a Y, reeves.com slash men this way podcast. If you are served by this and think others should hear it too, please share this episode or just write a review on your favorite podcast app. I really appreciate it and your words make a huge difference to whether other men and women will listen. So please do that so that you too can lead more men this way. And don't forget to subscribe yourself while you're at it. I'm your thriving life and relationship coach, Brian Reeves. Brian with a Y Reeves. Until soon, keep your head up, your breath relaxed, and your thoughts inspired.